This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount. Before I get to that, I want to highlight a couple of products. So footwear has been a big issue, and we all know that these heavy-duty work boots cause a lot of issues with joint health and fatigue. Listening to the responders in the field, the military in the field, 5.11 have reverse engineered and created some incredible footwear that is much more lightweight, just as durable, and minimizes both fatigue and damage to the joints. One of those is the Norris sneaker. I have a pair of those myself. They are incredible. And the other one is the AT trainer that has the Atlas system, which spreads the weight of the load over the entire foot, thus reducing fatigue and long-term damage. Aside from footwear, they have the backpacks. I have the AMP pack myself. They're civilian clothes, the jeans, the shorts. I absolutely live in these days. The flashlights are some of the brightest I've seen, and they last an incredibly long time on one charge. The list goes on and on. Now, because 5.11 cares about you, the tactical population, they are offering you a discount of 15% on every purchase that you make. So go to 5.11 Tactical, use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, and save 15% every time you shop. And if you want to learn even more about the company, listen to episode 338 with co-founder and CEO, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by GovX, and as you know, I only have companies on here that I truly use and believe in myself, and GovX is a complete no-brainer. If you are a member of fire, police, EMS, corrections, military, and even hospital setting doctors and nurses, you qualify for the free membership to GovX, which marries us with discounts from so many companies that you probably already use. And on top of that, it's not just for active duty, but also retirees, veterans, and volunteers. So for our professions, having to purchase so much of our equipment, every single dollar counts. And understanding that, GovX has reached out to you, the Behind the Shield podcast audience, to offer you an additional saving. On your first purchase of $50 or more, if you use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, they will give you an additional $15 off your first purchase. And another layer of GovX is GovX gives back. Every month they're going to sell a different patch and the proceeds from that patch goes to a charity that supports either first responders or military. So as I mentioned before, go to GovX.com, G-O-V-X.com, register for your free membership and save every single time you purchase. Welcome to episode 381 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute pleasure to welcome on the show space engineer Josh Clemente. So we discuss a host of topics from Josh's work in SpaceX and the Hyperloop project to his work now with levels and continuous glucose monitoring and a host of other topics in between. Before we get to this conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, Subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, the audience, whether individually, organizationally. So all I ask in return is that you pay it forward, share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else on planet Earth that needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Josh Clemente. Enjoy.
But Josh, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time and being patient when I rescheduled to uh, come on the Behind the Shield podcast. James, I'm really excited to be here and uh, glad we have a chance to talk. Absolutely. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I'm currently in my father's office in Northern Virginia, visiting them for his 60th birthday weekend. Very good. Well, happy birthday to your dad. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, that's a good kind of segue then. So tell me about um, where you were born and then your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. All right. This is going to be an interesting one. So uh, I was born in St. Louis, well, outside St. Louis, Missouri. It was actually a really small town um, called Owensville, Missouri. And uh, I, I spent the first few years there and then my father became a St. Louis police officer. Um, he, he was there for about seven years and then he moved to Washington field office for the FBI. He, uh, he went through the training in Quantico and then became a, an FBI agent, worked on narcotics, counterterrorism, weapons of mass destruction for uh, about 13 years. And uh, throughout that time, my family grew. Um, I'm actually one of nine siblings. Oh, wow. And, yeah. And, and my mom, who was a high school teacher originally, chose to homeschool all of us. And so I was homeschooled from K through 12. Uh, first time I stepped into a classroom really was for college. And uh, so I, I kind of developed this uh, two things throughout that experience. One was uh, an independence in uh, learning because my mom was teaching so many people at various stages of, of the uh, education you know, spectrum. She really had to rely on each of us to take a course and uh, teach ourselves. And so I, I developed an appreciation and independence there. And then I also, in my spare time, became fascinated with machines and vehicles primarily. And uh, so I spent a lot of time outside building crazy things. And uh, my dad, who is, a, is an exceptionally uh, mechanically minded person as well, uh, he and I built many things, buildings, uh, machines, dune buggies, and everything in between. Beautiful. Well, that's a hell of a career for both of them. So with your dad being in law enforcement for, you know, 20 years, what is his views? Not, not of, not of the inflammatory social media stuff that we're seeing, but just, just overall now of, of law enforcement having experience in the, you know, the, the urban setting and then with the FBI. Yeah. Um, you know, he's, he's frustrated by the state of, of things today. Uh, he, you know, generally he, he knows that there are, um, specific issues that need to be corrected, of course, at the highest levels and all the way through the ranks. But uh, at the end of the day, he has a great deal of respect and uh, spends a huge amount of his time supporting veterans of both law enforcement and military in whatever ways he can. And through that experience, I, I've also developed a deep appreciation. I, I have two brothers, uh, both of which have served in the Marine Corps, one of which is currently out on a training deployment. And um, so, you know, our family certainly is very supportive of um you know, the men and women who do what they do every day to keep us safe. And although there are some, you know, some terrible anecdotes that come out and uh, come to front of mind at the end of the day, uh, it, it, you know, as we'll get into, I think, in the subject matter on the show, anecdotes are not uh, they're, they're they're not statistically significant. And so um, I think that kind of speaks uh, the, the best that I can. That's kind of the, the best way to describe it, I would say, for, for both him and I. Absolutely. Yeah. Everyone's focusing on outliers at the moment. That's right. Beautiful. All right. Well, then, um, just staying with that just for a moment with a lot of this show, you know, highlighting, you know, mental and physical health within the tactical professions. And you know, we're all aware of, of many of the men and women in law enforcement and fire and EMS that do struggle with their health. With you being in this space now, 
what are the some of the the kind of uh, conversations you had with your father as far as physical and mental health in in his profession specifically? Yeah, you know, I think it's a it's a really tough problem because so much of the resilience that's needed in those professions comes. I think uh, it, it it seems to be traded directly against health and and personal self care to an extent. And um, it, it you know, there's a oftentimes I think in those communities there's a feeling that you you have to be immortal um, otherwise you're a mere mortal and and so it's a lot of the conversations I have with my dad are uh, are trying to break through similar barriers you know he's an extremely tough person he, he can endure more than anyone I know and um, that that kind of although I do think he's pretty close to immortal I also worry for for him both uh, the area under the curve the amount of stress the, the things he's put himself through uh, both on the job and 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 now in his new career and also for people around him and uh, who are now kind of carrying the torch, so to speak. And I, I just see a lot of room for opportunity or for, for improvement and optimization for specifically stress and sleep management. You know, I think that that's probably the biggest area of opportunity for, for, for those folks who are just like, you know, they're carrying a tremendous amount of cognitive burden, a huge amount of mental and physical stress all the time. And I think there's, there's a, you know, in, in our daily lifestyles, there are ways that small tweaks can be made, little micro optimizations that stack up and you earn interest on those improvements. And, uh, you know, over time, over years and decades and, and really what, what I'm working on with, with my dad, um, and with my, you know, my current work is to try to help people, uh, get receipts for those micro optimizations to see the benefits and be able to improve them. And these are diet, exercise, sleep, stress, just very small tweaks really do have powerful effects. Um, and so I, you know, I, I think again, for our men and women in uniform, it's, it's stress primarily in my opinion. Yeah, I agree hundred percent. It's interesting the way you put it in interest terms and it would be a compounding interest with the, the ill health, but like you said, the nutritional choices, the exercise choices, the the mindfulness practice, the mobility training, that's all, you know, compounding interest in the positive way. That's exactly right. And 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 it can, you know, the inverse is that it can also be compounding in the negative way. So um there are choices we make every single day and, and we, some of them are binary in the sense that, uh, this will either work for us or it will work against us. And if we repeat those for, for days and months and, and decades, um, it can take us very far off the path of, of health and wellness and, uh, just have these, these cascading trickle down effects into every corner of our lives and families. And, um, I think that, you know, I've seen several examples of this. I've, I've kind of, uh, I, I've seen it a bit in my own family. And so I'm, I'm optimistic that with better information, this, this can be avoided and we can only earn positive interest. Absolutely. All right. Well, then speaking of exercise, what about yourself as a young man? Were you an athlete? So I loved sports. I, I, uh, <laughs> I'm a little bit ADD with sports, so I played pretty much everything, uh, ice hockey, soccer, lacrosse, um, rugby. I, I stuck with rugby and ice hockey in college and played uh, club versions of both of those. And I was also in ROTC for the army. I, I did not end up commissioning. Uh, but I, I spent a lot of time, uh, you know, as a young adult, physically training and, um, always have really enjoyed, uh, athleticism and, um, you know, competition, especially when it, when it comes to sports. And so, uh, huge, huge fan of, of getting out there and, and playing the games. And, uh, that kind of led after graduation, I, um, as I got into a professional career, I chose to become a, a CrossFit trainer. And so I'm, I'm now a CrossFit level two trainer, which, um, 
you know, I've been, I, I don't train other people that often, but it is an exceptional way for me to stay on top of my game and uh, stay aware of the kinematics and uh, just generally get deeper than uh, just, you know, s- these, these superficial visits to the, to the gym. It keeps me focused on uh, the theory and the higher level understanding of, of what we're doing and why. Beautiful. Well, I definitely want to explore CrossFit in a little bit, but you mentioned about, you know, entering your profession. So when you were still the high school age, what was your burning desire as far as career? It's funny, you know, I, I never really spent much time thinking about this. It was really when, when the time came to apply, I only ever had one, uh, idea in my mind and that was to be a mechanical engineer. And that's just because my parents told me, look, this is, you know, you should build things. And, um, and I didn't really know specifically what I wanted to build, but they said, you know, if you want the most flexibility in going out and spending your days similar to how you do today in high school where you're in the shop welding and uh, building creations that you love to, uh, you know, that give you adrenaline and a sense of accomplishment. Uh, the best way to do that is mechanical engineering. It's the most broad um, engineering discipline for building machines. And so that was it. I, I never uh, kind of second guessed that. I applied for engineering school, um, didn't consider computer science or software engineering even once. It was always, I just wanted to work with my hands on engineering creations. And uh, and so that's, that's what it was. I, I don't remember a specific date. I, I honestly think the first time I was like, okay, I'm applying for engineering. That's the career path I'm choosing was the moment I was filling out applications and it wasn't a decision. It was just, oh yeah, I got to put that on the line because that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> <laughs> so where did that take you? Which which uh, college and then what was the first job? So I went to a fairly small school. It's called the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. And uh, I got a scholarship there and it was kind of close to home. My sister had gone there. So um, I, I felt that at that time, the smaller engineering school would give me an opportunity to have uh, maybe more flexibility and in leeway. And I think ultimately it did. Um, my senior design, for example, my senior design pro- program, I was able to uh, kind of take over an entire building at the school and build a prototype of this uh, four-wheel steering off-road vehicle that was actually, the intention of it was to be an, an all-terrain ambulance for the scenario in uh, after Hurricane Katrina. So that, you know, that was kind of front of mind at that time. And there was a lot of debris. It was extremely hard to get ingress, egress for ambulance crews. And so a lot of people were doing this on foot. And so, uh, you know, myself and my team, we designed an all-terrain version of this that could four-wheel steer. And basically, it could it had a 15-foot wheelbase, but it could turn tighter than a Mini Cooper. And so, uh, you know, I, I not only designed that, but then spent about 40 hours a week building it in in one of the outbuildings on campus. And um, you know, that, that's an example of, I think just the, the small school and the, the flexibility it brought and ultimately that program, uh, or, or sorry, that, that project is what I pitched to SpaceX and ultimately was, I think the, the project, uh, the proof of work that got me the job there at SpaceX after school. Beautiful. And as you know, if that concept was ever used in a rescue, um, you know, environment, I've seen similar, uh, I've seen similar systems out there since, but, um, you know, I never ended up pursuing getting production going for it. It was, um, 
it, it, it's something that I would love to revisit. It was a really fun project. I actually still have it uh, at my parents' house. And so <laughs> maybe at some point I'll, I'll get a chance to reboot that. And I think it, it would have value. It's kind of similar to the Chenoweth, like sand, sand rails that um, were used in Desert Storm and actually I think are still used in, in uh, certain theaters today. But it, it has the added benefit of, I think, enhanced maneuverability. Beautiful. Now, speaking of which, I don't know if you saw the the YouTube video kind of go viral, but the, there's a company that makes jet suits in the UK and they just... Gravity. Yes. Yeah. So, the, yes. the, the kind of paramedic response unit that they were developing. Absolutely. I, I, I'm a big fan of what they're doing and I've been following closely. I tried to become a jet suit uh, pilot for them and uh, ended up just getting sidetracked. I, I need to reboot that conversation. <laughs> well, I'm hoping to try and get him on the on the show. I think that'll be another great conversation. That would be huge. Yeah, I love their ideas. And, you know, if they can extend the flight time on that system, it's going to be a game changer. I mean, it's already just mind blowing. Yeah. And it is just, a, you know, a, a, another step forward from putting motorcycles with medics on. They've done even in firefighting um, motorcycles in London and places like that. So to be able to get to, you know, remote uh, locations, whether it's medical or even wildland fire to start, you know, attack a fire before it gets, uh, you know, gain size, I think would be incredible. 100%. Beautiful. All right. Well, then you're going to have to educate me. I have. I was actually one of the very last um, space shuttle launches. We won the kind of NASA lottery when we were over there. Um, before mm. we even get into SpaceX, can you kind of give me a history of the the kind of uh, demise? Is a very negative word, but but what we saw as the the downsizing of NASA and then you know the inception of SpaceX. Yeah. Um, so first off, I, I'm a massive fan of NASA. I think the space shuttle is one of the most amazing machines ever. I, it is probably the most amazing machine ever created by humans. And at the end of the day, the what I think went wrong there, if if wrong is the right term, is just the safety record of the system was not what it was hoped to be. And so the the two high-profile failures of space shuttle ended up really undermining confidence in it at, at high levels, you know, in, I think, political uh, ways and also in engineering circles. And the space shuttle was intended to be a very high uh, cadence, reusable spacecraft in the sense that the intention was that it would land and refuel and take off again uh, shortly thereafter. And it ended up actually not being that way. It, it came down to, you know, Numbers, uh, I could be off by a bit here, but it's something around a billion dollars per launch for the space shuttle. And uh, so so both the cost and those high-profile failures kind of made it a bit of a, I, I, I don't know, it sort of like slowly but surely sealed its own fate. The, the program ballooned and a lot of uh, safety concerns and committees were assembled in order to try to avoid repeating old mistakes. And, and that ended up adding cost and adding uh, process and schedule to every launch. And it ended up just uh, slowly but surely, I think, um, kind of sealing the fate. But what that left was an opportunity um, for, you know, N NASA had a few kind of dark years where there was no vehicle that could take American astronauts into space. And it was, it was really an embarrassing time. And however, like, there were some really forward thinking folks there who said, you know, 
at the end of the day, although NASA has done amazing things, the Apollo program, Saturn V, the space shuttle, all of these are incredible accomplishments. Like bringing humans into space is something that the NASA and putting them on the moon is something that NASA can always stand proudly on. But we've developed uh, an amazing private industry um, in the aerospace world, and we should tap that and allow commercial companies to do the development work for us. Let's be the customer rather than the primary contractor on space equipment. And that was not... Uh, that was a highly controversial decision. You know, the original commercial crew program, the emerg- even before that, the commercial orbital transportation uh, program that that SpaceX originally landed for NASA was was highly confidential, at, or sorry, highly controversial at every level. And so, um, but at, to the credit of the people who who pushed it uh, through, it is the lifeline that developed SpaceX. So Elon had, you know, he wanted to see innovation in space, and he was willing to put his money in. But at the end of the day, he did not have this, the funding needed to build a system like Falcon 9 or Dragon. And it required NASA saying, you know, we're going to replace Space Shuttle with a commercial vehicle. And um, we're going to put this out for bid. And then rolling the dice on a company that honestly was just a bunch of engineers in a big open building and um, and and make, you know, take that risk, frankly, uh, and, put, and put their faith in the team that ultimately got us to where we are. And so uh, I think the since then... You know, that's the rest is history. We now have Falcon 9 and Dragon, which are both reusable vehicles that um, are much closer to the uh, takeoff, land, refuel, and takeoff again vision than Space Shuttle ever, ever got. And we have an, another system, Starship, which is in development now that I think is going to take that evolutionary leap forward even still. So I, I think it's a huge success story. And there are plenty of other contractors now who are benefiting from the commercial programs that NASA put in place. And um, it's kind of a beautiful thing to watch. No, it is. It is. And uh, like I said, being in Florida, it was a very sad thing to watch where it seemed like the space industry was just going away. I know that, you know, the financial impact of the the East Coast was pretty significant. Now, what do you think it is about Elon specifically and and the way he thinks and his business mind that was different to so many other people that I'm assuming had tried and failed before him? Well, I think the things that Elon does better than anyone I know are He's relentlessly obsessed with the core principles, also known as the first principles of a problem. So when he first decided that he could build a rocket, what he did is he made a spreadsheet that was like, how much aluminum is needed to build a rocket? And basically did the the mass calculation on how much aluminum and then saw how, how much that costs. And then how much computing power? Okay, how much does it cost to buy that much computing power? And that's it was like a few line items to decide how much a rocket should cost. And, you know, you could you could become uh, you could get just drowned in analysis paralysis trying to, to quote out what a what a rocket should cost. But he did this very quickly on a single spreadsheet using first principles, like basically saying, what are the physics limitations on this problem and what should those cost us? And then from there, why should it be any more expensive than that? Someone has to prove to me that it's not possible to do it for this price before I'm willing to admit failure. And so he is just relentlessly obsessed with first principles and always, you know, sifting through the details to get down to the core problem. And he drives that right through the culture at all of his companies. And so there's that. And then the other thing is the willingness to to bet it all, to double down when other people will not. When things look impossible, whether it's a deadline or it's a, a problem like, you know, hypersonic retro propulsion, which is what Falcon 9 does when it's falling back towards Earth and it turns its engines on. You know, this is something that's never been done before. Uh, the vehicle's moving at thousands of miles per hour into a dense atmosphere. It seems like it's impossible. Uh, many aerospace um 
engineers and uh, and large organizations said it was impossible. And Elon bet the company on it. And he, he repeatedly does, you know, that you can look at his track record and always see that when stakes are highest, he's willing to put his own money and his own time and his own career and reputation right on, on the spot. And I think those two things together mean big things because it's like such an example for people to follow into, into battle, so to speak. And uh, it's really... You know, there are plenty of failures as well, but that's part of the game, I think, um, when, when playing in these uh, super high-stakes arenas. Yeah, well, it seems to resonate very deeply with me regarding so many of the, the people I've had on here when it comes to issues of whether it's farming, whether it's, you know, the nutrition, whatever it is. When if you just take a moment and reverse engineer, and I'm simplifying, obviously, what Elon, the, the genius, has done with, with rockets, but when you reverse engineer getting, you know, um, a plan from A to B, you realize that like you said how much super superfluous waste there really is. And anyone can look at the way that a lot of organizations work, you know, and you have to have 10 emails just to get something done. And I've, I've even found this with the podcast. Like you and I had a phone conversation and we, we made a date and that was it. There was nothing else. So I'm seeing that, you know, that kind of common denominator of these people that can just say, all right, where am I now? Where do I need to be? And what is that actual as the crow flies line as opposed to, quote unquote, the way we've always done it? Yes, exactly. I use that exact way of framing it is we will come up against the way things are done often and we will need to just plow right through that because, um, you know, it, it's not always necessary to follow the the uh, consensus and oftentimes it's counter it's contradictory. It's um, taking you in the wrong direction. And I just think it's a powerful lesson for people who are getting started in their careers um, or, or no matter where you are in your career to just kind of reassess like what I do every day. Is it necessary that it be done this way? Is it the best way to do it? Or is there a much faster route to success? You know, let's connect A to B as quickly and directly as possible. And I, I just think there's so much opportunity in our society to um, improve efficiencies and, you know, the beautiful thing is that if we did so, we would have so much additional time to spend either solving other problems or just enjoying our lives more. Uh, we spend a lot of time in process and unnecessary bureaucracy that I think could just be improved by taking this first principles approach. I agree 100%. I think that you know this COVID period for some, not for all, but for some has made people realize, well, wait a second, I used to sit in a car for an hour and a half to drive to a cubicle to do the exact same thing I'm doing from home now. So I think I hope that the, some of the positive things that come out of this is efficiency in some of the businesses from that point of view. Definitely. I completely agree. Right. Well, then regarding SpaceX, what was your actual position in that company? So I had several. I started off as a structures engineer uh, working on manufacturing parts of the spacecraft and rocket. And then I moved into what's called responsible engineering which is where you kind of own an entire system and uh, everything from design to sourcing components to getting it produced to putting it on the rocket and uh, sending it up. And then finally, I uh, the last three-ish years, I was one of the first employees in the life support team, so in the life support group that SpaceX developed. And I, I led a small team developing the pressurized life support systems. So these were uh, the breathing apparatus, the equipment that keeps the cabin pressurized with the appropriate levels of oxygen, carbon dioxide, nitrogen, uh, the fire suppression systems, and the, the valves that 
pressurize and repressurize the the various uh, docking adapters for the International Space Station uh, and plug into the spacesuits and things like this to keep the astronauts breathing. And so that that program is um, I worked on that for like I said a few years with some amazing people and we got that through critical design reviews and that system actually flew for the first time in May with Bob Benkin and Doug Hurley to the International Space Station and they returned in August. Beautiful. Well, there's two areas, obviously, that are very pertinent in, you know, in our professions. So firstly, the fire suppression systems. What were some of the innovations that you had there? Yeah, I mean, the, the tricky thing with fire suppression in, on orbit is that um, essentially everything that we every material that we have inside the vehicle can is accounted for and you know what it's made of um, however there are certain scenarios in which the atmosphere can be really uh, fire <laughs> fire inducing let's say so uh, there are scenarios in which the cabin can be at high pressures of, of pure oxygen and these are rare scenarios but they can happen and so in in the presence of pure oxygen uh, the reactivity is so high that essentially anything will combust I mean titanium, aluminum, steel, it'll all burn at a sufficient pressure. And so um, we had to kind of consider a bunch of scenarios where the astronauts could be unable to personally, you know, battle the flames, whether it's because they're in microgravity and it's very hard to maneuver or because they're strapped into their seats on ascent. And so you, you can't necessarily directly confront the, the fire. And so we, we did some really interesting things with automated fire detection and response and whether that's closing off certain segments of the vehicle in order to allow it to starve itself out or purging the cabin by opening valves um, or ultimately suffocating it with uh, dispersion of some substances like, like nitrogen. Uh, we had a kind of a multi-pronged approach to detection and, and response. And uh, I think the really nice thing, the thing that I'm quite proud of is that a great deal of it could be done um, while the astronauts were kind of out of the loop, able to, to just remain in their seats. And um, so although the systems, to my knowledge, have not needed to, to be used, and uh, I'm sure they've, they've made some changes since I've uh, moved on, I, I think uh, you know, it, was a, it was a really awesome project to be a part of, to just learn about the material science and to, to work through the various um, failure scenarios or contingency scenarios that can occur uh, throughout the various stages of the mission. Beautiful. Very, very interesting. And then you mentioned breathing apparatus too, another thing that we have to use a lot. Any innovations on, on that side? Definitely. Uh, one of the biggest things is the spacesuits that uh, were developed for these for the Crew Dragon capsule are, y you may have seen them if you watch the launch, they, they don't look like any other space suit that's been developed thus far in, in any space program. They're, they're very sleek, they're very minimal, um, they're quite flexible and easy to, to use, and they have an aesthetic appeal that I don't think has, uh, has ever been kind of front and center in a design program before. And so um, along with that, we were able to make some really nice improvements to the, the usability and the comfort of the, of the, the suit system and also, also the breathing apparatus. So uh, you know the suits plug into the seats through this uh, umbil umbilical uh, connection. So it, it plugs into the kind of the thigh section of the suit. And then uh, cool air is circulated through that. And the cool air is used to obviously keep the, the astronauts uh, cool. Uh, you know, it kind of like waterfalls down the face, but then also helps to um, keep keep air mixing through the cabins so that you don't get pockets of carbon dioxide or, or pockets of, of oxygen that could be at higher pressures. And, uh, you know, uh, we also had um, 
you know, several emergency systems built into the into the vehicle for, uh, for example, if they, if it was necessary to do a ballistic reentry and crash land somewhere, they could then um, use backup systems to escape the vehicle and uh, a lot of really interesting things as it relates to breathing, which. Um, yeah, which which was quite fun. You know, the the beauty of designing space equipment in the modern era is that with electronics and modern software, you can do some incredible stuff with automation. And uh, a lot of the knobs and switches and manual processes are, have just gone away. And you now can just kind of maintain an airline-like uh, experience for the crew while uh, while operating in very hostile environments. It's amazing. Now, now going on on that a little bit further as well with the materials. One thing that I've seen, you know, my, my fire career is our gear is very bulky. And then the big thing is the gloves. I mean, we have these giant thick, you know, like almost like boxing gloves. You know, they're so, they're so, uh, clumsy. Um, and two things that I've always said that would, would revolutionize the fire service is, you know, a, an actual communication system that works. And we still struggle with that when we go into buildings. Um, but then the dexterity in the hands too. Did you come across any materials that, you know, I know you, you have extreme cold in some of the, the space, uh, environments, but that, that were, were, had the potential of being a great material for heat as well? Well, there was uh, a requirement that the, the suit materials all be, uh, well, you know, I never say fireproof, but fire resistant. And most of the time we were using synthetic materials. Um, I didn't get very deeply involved in the, the fabric development specifically for the suits. Um, I know that there was some re- really advanced work going on with the, the anthropometrics there to make sure that the suit, uh, the dexterity was what it needs to be. I mean, you can imagine trying to maneuver on orbit with, with no gravity, um, is, is super tricky. And it's important that, uh, they have not only the dexterity to grab on and, and position themselves, but also to operate the, um, the sensitive switches. And you know, we actually used primarily touch panels, uh, you know, touch screens in the vehicle, but, um, it's necessary to have dexterity while you're also accelerating at multiple G's, uh, being thrashed around by the thrust of, you know, several, you know, over a million pounds of, of thrust during ascent. And, and so like dexterity is a huge focus for, for the crew. And, um, yeah, I, I don't have any specific materials that came from the development process, but I can assure you that almost all of it was synthetic and, uh, and, and fireproof. So hopefully that trickles down. You know, one of the beautiful things about the space development programs is that so much of the technology that starts off in that most hostile of environments ends up in other industries uh, down here on terra firma. So um, I'm, I'm optimistic that we, we will eventually see those sorts of um, those sorts of development projects make their way into, uh, yeah, hopefully into the fire service down here. Absolutely. Well, I got one more question, then we'll move on from SpaceX. But you mentioned about the design flaws that obviously, sadly, cost many lives and the uh, the shuttles. You know, what was that issue and how were you able to overcome that with um, uh, Falcon 9 and Dragon? Yeah, you know, the so the, the Challenger explosion happened because of an O-ring failure. So uh, something along the lines of thermal uh, stress on a seal on the solid rocket motors. Um, essentially, there were a few people within the organization that were aware that the environments were were out of range for um, the the system and they you know they put up the warning flag that that this shouldn't happen and we should delay the mission and it was kind of it's not entirely clear where where the blame specifically lies but at the end of the day I, I consider that to be a process failure the challenger explosion there was a lot of pressure a lot of schedule pressure to make that mission happen on on time and it ended up being uh, disastrous obviously 
And, and so that, that kind of highlights how much process matters and how much reinforcing the appropriate values, the correct values throughout the organization matters. And uh, at SpaceX, before any launch, even without human beings on board, um, you know, we had a lot of peer review. So people would check each other's systems and they would do so with the intention of finding failures. You know, the, the goal is not to uh, have have somebody else look through your your stuff and give you the thumbs up and give you the pat on the back. It was please find the problems in my work. Um, th- I, that is what we're here to do is to help each other avoid disaster. And then Elon himself would send an email around, and Gwyn Shotwell, president of the company, would would send uh, an email around and say, "Here's my number. If there's something that you feel uh, is concerning with this mission." We will call it off. Just tell us, you know, reach out directly to me and I will, uh, you know, I will pull the plug on, on this thing if we need to. And so that that commitment to checking, double checking, triple checking um, before something goes off is is how we kind of countered that that's systemic problem. And then the Columbia, which disintegrated over Texas on reentry, that was caused by a piece of of the uh Basically, it's called like a foam insulation, but it's this dense um, insulating material that was on the uh, the I believe it was the shuttle booster, and it broke loose during liftoff, and it damaged the ceramic tiles on one of the wings of of space shuttle. And um, essentially, the this was a really tricky one because they were already in orbit before people really started to pay attention and concern themselves with whether there was a problem. And it was ultimately decided, like, we don't think this is going to be a problem on reentry. Uh, let's go ahead and come home. And um, sadly, you know, it, the, the damage to the ceramic tiles was so bad that hot plasma was able to uh, enter that, that area that had been damaged and, dis- and just shred the vehicle apart. And that was a real heartbreaker because, um, you know, it feels avoidable. They, they did do a lot of work to try to dis- discover whether there was a problem and ultimately they decided that it was it was not an issue and it's it's really hard to go back and, and point the finger there you know obviously i wasn't there and um at, at the end of the day this is again like one of those things that it's, it comes with the territory there is risk in space travel i think at spacex you know, we have a different vehicle architecture um oftentimes the focus is on reducing complexity as as much as possible. And the reason for that is like, if you can turn uh, 10 parts into one, you've taken 10 potential failure, mo- failure modes and turned them into one failure mode. And so simplicity rules. And if we can uh, reduce the part count and reduce the opportunities for defects and manufacturing errors and loose parts coming off the vehicle and damaging other parts, that will ultimately uh, potentially save us from some from a problem we never saw coming. And um, that's kind of the I, I think the the best way to describe uh, the approach to to countering that second issue that came up is there were just so many moving parts. I think there were 2.5 million parts on the space shuttle, and uh, you can imagine how many issues can happen when when you have such a complex system. Absolutely. Well, I mean, thank you for for you know kind of leading us through this because the parallels are very very interesting coming from an industry that's completely outside you know what most of the people listening are are in. However, there's so many you know intersecting lines, and one of the things that you mentioned with with Elon sending the the email is to me that's a resounding understanding of the fact that ego equals you know death in in, in many. Uh, professions that I work with and among and then with space travel as well. So how was he able to foster that humility and that ownership within the organization? 
I think to a, to a large extent, it was leading by example and doing it himself. Um, you know, Elon's not a perfect person, but I would say that his leadership is exceptional. He, he's very, he can be a very uh, tough person to work with, frankly. But um, I think that that's necessary. You got to be kind of bullheaded sometimes to get things done. But when it comes to those specific qualities of leadership, uh, demonstrating by example that ego has no place in uh, in an environment where people's lives are at stake and 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 where uh, you know honestly the he looks at it even I think even further in the future and says it's not just people's lives today that are at stake; it's the future of civilization that is at stake. If we frivolously destroy SpaceX by making poor decisions that end up in a few failures um, to make orbit and end up with SpaceX closing its doors, humans may never become a multi-planet species. And that would be the the greatest mistake of all time. So um, not only should we, you know, drop the ego and just get this done the right way and uh, whether or not somebody has to, to raise their hand and say, Hey, I screwed up. Uh, it, it doesn't matter. Like what, what we will not, no one will ever get fired for saying I made a mistake. They'll, what will happen is they'll get fired if they, uh, fail to raise a concern that, uh, you know, is, is significant. And so that, yeah, that trickles down people watch that example. And then, um, every layer of, of management within and all the way down to the individual being called a responsible engineer. You know, we don't call them senior design engineers. We say you are a responsible engineer, meaning everything that happens inside your system is, is your responsibility specifically. You are accountable. And of course your manager will also take responsibility all the way up through Elon. But at the end of the day, we want the buck to stop at the person closest to the problem. Beautiful. I hope, uh, I hope there's a lot of people in, in the professions that are listening to this because I think that's that's kind of almost the opposite in some departments where it's the ones raising their hands saying, hey, we should train more. Hey, maybe we should get better equipment. Hey, you know, um, are we prepared for incident X that, that gets told to shut up? And I think that when, when we look at Elon and obviously Richard in a second as well, some of the great leaders that we have, it's it's always the polar opposite of that. So it's beautiful to hear that it's not obviously a micromanager model, but a hire well-trained, you know, well-capable people and then trust them to do their job. Beautiful. All right. So then speaking of Hyperloop then and Richard Branson, how did you transition from SpaceX to that project? So when I was there, um, it was called Hyperloop One, or actually it was called Hyperloop Technologies, and then it became Hyperloop One, um, and then ultimately it became Virgin Hyperloop One. So along the way, uh, I, I started at Hyperloop because they were, you know, I really had a longing for that early, early stage. Um, you know, when I got to SpaceX, I think I was like employee 640 something, and uh, it, it was over 7,000 people when I left. And although it was, you know, they're still doing incredible things for the first time. I had a desire to kind of go back to the earliest stages and be involved in like the very big concept development process for a new program. And Hyperloop, essentially, it's a it's a long tube that connects two points and uh, or multiple points, and you pull all of the air out of the tube, and this allows a maglev train to essentially move through the tube with no wind resistance. And and wind resistance or or aerodynamic drag is the number one source of power consumption for maglev trains. So if you pull all of the air out of the tube, you can move at, you know, a thousand miles an hour, for example, with minimal energy expenditure. And so this is a, it's a really interesting concept. And since the vehicle is inside a tube that has no air in it, it is a spacecraft because that, you know, that's a vacuum just like the vacuum of space. And so it requires 
all of the systems that a, a space system needs or a, or a spacecraft needs, including life support. And so th- that was kind of my, my wheelhouse. And I had a couple friends who were on the founding team over there. And so I, I went there for a year to, to design and work on the first full-scale Hyperloop prototype, which was built out in North Vegas. And uh, yeah, I had a great time working on a really cool out-of-the-box system. And it was during that time that I kind of started experimenting with physiology and getting more interested in the metabolism side of things. And ultimately, I, you know, I got into the human performance and glucose monitoring stuff shortly thereafter, which is uh, how I kind of cut my time at Hyperloop short, uh, even before Richard Branson started um, to get involved. So I, I was there before he took over and uh, unfortunately did not ever get a chance to, to work with him on anything, which I, I do regret because I, I look up to him a lot. Yeah, no, I think he would be he'd be an amazing person to sit down with, but I know that's a, that's a, a shooting for the stars guess. Um, is uh, is the Shinkansen the Japanese bullet train? Is that um, the same technology? Obviously not with a vacuum, but is it magnets as well, or is it a traditional train? Yeah, you know there there is uh, it, it is maglev technology, and China has several maglev technologies as well. Uh, so Japan and China are kind of the front of they're the tip of the spear on that tech. Um, Hyperloop does a few different things that um, are quite interesting. Interesting. I think they're going to announce some some more details about their current state of the technology soon. But um, yeah, maglev is an amazing tech. You know, it's literally the vehicle is hovering above the tracks. There's no contact there, and so it's essentially in flight the entire time. And and it's really nice because you have very little wear. You know, this is uh, it takes a lot of power to hover that thing and move it along. But if you can remove the wind resistance, it, it's an opportunity for, I think, kind of a game changer for techn- or for transportation if we get there. And then as far as a carbon imprint, uh, uh, footprint, I'm assuming that's a lot lower than any sort of fossil fuel vehicle. Sure. Yeah. You have to take into account construction and, uh, you know, the additional materials needed to make the tube. But I think it can be done. Certainly, if you look at timescales of the, you know, the amount of time that a system could be in use, it absolutely lowers the carbon footprint. And um, yeah, I really hope to see a full scale system in place soon. Beautiful. All right. Well, you you mentioned about uh, glucose monitoring before we do. When when was it that you first uh, found CrossFit? So I started CrossFit in college in like 2009 a friend of mine tom was uh he was one of the first people that ever brought it to my attention and uh he he um got kind of got me into the gym to do a couple of the early benchmark workouts and i didn't really think much of it again until after school uh it was probably my second year in the professional world and um uh, uh, actually my cousin wanted to uh he, he wanted to start a gym together. And so we both went and got, uh, our level one certs for CrossFit. And that was really when I got very interested is, um, you know, the level one cert I had done CrossFit before, but it really gave me a better perspective on the, I think the holistic approach that CrossFit takes. They, they really drill nutritional sensibility, um, the kinematics of, of lifting heavy weights and then also just the functional nature of everything they do. There's, there's not a lot of superfluous stuff happening there. It's a very, uh, you know, it's always focused on increasing capacity across various domains. And I think, I think that that's, that really resonated with me. So, uh, from that point, you know, I, I just kind of dove in much deeper and, uh, I, I ended up getting my level two in 2018. And so, uh, 
or 2019, maybe it was just last year. I'm losing track of time here, but um, yeah, I've continued to get even more interested and uh, I'm experimenting with a lot of different exercise domains now, kind of doing some more long duration uh, endurance work. I'd love to complete a full Ironman someday. I'm currently just getting started on some, some early triathlon training, but uh, I still have a very strong respect for the CrossFit community and, and uh, yeah, that the broad range of capacity you can build in that training. Beautiful. Speaking of uh, Ironman, there's a young man, Chris Nickich, that I just interviewed who has Down syndrome, who is about two weeks out now, I think, from running a full marathon up in Tallahassee. So, yeah, I mean, the guy is a a beast, absolute beast. I mean, you watch him, he's got like full poker face, but is, you know, I mean, yeah, outworking 99% of the population. It's incredible. So that's someone to to look at while you're working your way up. That's fantastic. I'm going to have to look him up. Brilliant. All right. Well, then, so lead me through your journey for self-exploration as far as your own energy levels and then how that ended up uh, becoming the genesis of levels. Yeah. So at SpaceX, you know, it was a it was a very stressful environment, as you can imagine. Um, oftentimes we were one launch away from closing our doors for good. And, uh, you know, there was a, a ton of personal accountability, as we talked about. And, you know, uh, it's easy to, to just blame the entirety of what we're feeling on the requirements of our job and just say, I'm, I'm working hard, I'm stressed out at work, uh, and not look at the bigger picture of how are we living our lives. And that's what I was doing. So I got to a point where every day was just a really intense personal struggle. Um, I was, I was literally, my energy levels were crashing as I parked my car in the parking lot. Like I would oftentimes close my eyes to just try and get a few minutes of sleep before I had even walked into the, into the office. And, you know, as soon as I'm going in, I'm getting my first coffee and by 11 AM I'm getting my 10th coffee. And, you know, it was just, I just wanted to kind of crawl under my, my desk and sleep. And along with this physical fatigue, that's just like inability to, to keep myself moving forward. I also had a lot of mood disorder going on, just like a ton of ups and downs, highs and lows, uh, very just across the board, mentally, physically unstable, um, just not feeling at my peak by any means. And despite that, I was in really good physical condition. So I was working out regularly, um, 8% body fat, something like that, like great lifting capacity, like at, at a good point physically and aesthetically. Um, and so I had always approached health as, um, uh, just a synonym for physical fitness. So as long as you can, you know, run fast, jump high, lift heavy weights, you're healthy, or at least that's the closest you can get. And I actually came across some, a study that was done in collaboration with NASA by Dr. Don Diagostino. And he he's a ketogenic researcher actually in South Florida. And this study showed that rodents who are exposed to a high pressure oxygen environment can live five times longer if they're on a ketogenic diet and they have ketones in their blood than if they're on a normal diet, a glycine, like a glucose uh, heavy diet. And that study is actually the first thing, the first domino that tipped me off to the fact that uh, a diet alone, macronutrient composition alone is giving these rodents essentially uh, superpowers in the sense that they are surviving five times longer than they otherwise would in this hostile environment. And I, I was thinking about this from the perspective of astronauts and thinking, wow, like, you know, just a dietary composition could potentially save them in these failure scenarios I was dealing with. And um, that's when I kind of zoomed out and thought, huh, so if diet has that much potential to provide people with physiologic improvement and benefit, um, and of course, I'm extrapolating. It was a study on rodents, but I'm saying if if diet has that much potential to provide benefit, 
what am I doing as it relates to diet to give myself these benefits? Because today I eat whatever I want because I don't gain weight and I assume that that's fine. But maybe that's not the case. Perhaps this is a more meaningful uh, part of, of health. And so I started to do some research on diet, nutrition. I became extremely jaded almost immediately <laughs> because there was so much contradictory information. And instead I decided, all right, I need objective data. So I'm just going to measure blood markers. Um, and the, the easiest one to measure is, is glucose. Uh, basically, uh, glucose is, is the primary molecule, the primary energy molecule for modern humans. And uh, you can uh, get a finger prick device that you basically prick your finger, you take a drop of blood, and you can measure your glucose levels on the spot. And so I got one of these devices. I started pricking my finger about 60 times a day. And it was, I couldn't make heads or tails of it. It was just kind of a, a scattered plot. And uh, so eventually I read this book called Wired to Eat by Rob Wolf. And in that, he describes a continuous glucose monitor. And this is a device that you can wear full time, and it gives you a readout directly on your phone of your glucose information in the moment. So I asked my doctor to write a script for these because they're developed for the management of diabetes. And he basically said, no way. You know, you're super healthy. You don't need this. Don't worry about it. Uh, I talked to three other doctors thereafter. All of them turned me down. Um, eventually, I did get one. And I put it on. And within two weeks, I had enough data to know that I was either pre-diabetic or, uh, or borderline, depending on who you ask. And that was the moment that completely changed my, my life and career trajectory. Beautiful. So, um, with Don Diagnostino, get his name right. Um, you know, for people listening, tell him about his work. Cause I know that he's kind of one of the revered figures when it comes to, to fasting and, and intermittent fasting. Yeah. So, um, I'm actually very lucky to be currently working with Dom. He's, he's working on this project with us as one of our primary researchers, along with Ben Bickman and Molly Malouf. And uh, so, so Dom is, uh, he's a neuroscientist by training. And he is the foremost researcher on the ketogenic diet, which, uh, so just to give a little context there, basically the human body can use fat, protein, and carbohydrates to create energy. And the, the processes that, that do that are called your metabolism. Uh, however, there's a fourth molecule called a ketone, which is basically, it's a form of fat that is repackaged so that it can dissolve in water. It becomes soluble. And that allows uh, this fat molecule to cross into the brain. So it can cross the blood-brain barrier and be used for energy inside the brain. And that is crucial uh, because it can be used as a replacement for glucose or as a substitute. And so Dom uh, became the, the foremost researcher on ketosis. And he himself has been, I think, in a ketogenic state for something like 14 or 15 years now. And uh, he's done things like setting lifting records. You know, he's an extremely physically fit person. Um, he, he's also gone on to kind of forge a lot of new areas of research in, uh, the treatment of epilepsy for, for children using a ketogenic diet rather than, than pills and, and, uh, supplements. He's, um, he's done a ton of research in fasting, so you can get into ketosis two different ways. You can either eat a very high fat diet. So like 80% fat by, by, uh, by mass, or you can get into what's called fasted ketosis, which is where you just don't eat anything and your body slowly depletes the reserves of sugar and, that are stored called, you know, that's glycogen and, and start to tap into your body fat stores. And, and so it will actually take your body fat and convert it into ketones so that it can provide um, your brain with energy. And so he, he's also pushed that field forward. So the understanding of 
how fasted nutritional ketosis works and where it can be used for uh, the treatment of everything from epilepsy to cancer and, and everything in between. So uh, he's a fascinating guy. He's extremely well published and also just generally a, a really good person. Yeah, he's someone I definitely would love to get on here as well because I know with the, the cancer side, um, correct me if I'm wrong, they're finding now that the the ketosis seems to amplify the efficacy of some of the drugs that they use to treat cancer as well. That's right. Yeah, he's finding, uh, well, well, their research team are finding a lot of ways in which ketosis can be uh, exactly complementary to tr some traditional treatments or uh, potentially even a replacement for some traditional treatments. You know, um, a lot of the theories of cancer are that it's a mitochondrial dysfunction and that if you can starve the cancer cells of sugar, you can you can kill them. And so there's a ton of really fascinating er, research going on here and just yeah, if you, you should definitely connect with him and chat with him. I, I think the conversation would be amazing. And I, I know I learned something from him every time he opens his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, so then as far as your own journey, so you're looking for, you know, a, a better device. So with the engineering background, at what point did you realize that that was your aha moment to create your own? So as I mentioned, I got to that point where I realized I was pre-diabetic personally. And again, this is despite having uh, pretty excellent biomarkers, my doctor telling me that everything was great and being physically quite fit, uh, not having the traditional uh, sort of body concerns or, uh, you know, body fat that somebody that you might think of would be associated with prediabetes or diabetes. And so that was completely shocking to me. I did not anticipate that. And I spent that that caused me to kind of dive down the rabbit hole of metabolism physiology to try to understand why this could be possible like what is going on that physical fitness and and general health could be so erratic um or the, or that that could then allow such erratic uh metabolism or metabolic control or lack thereof and um essentially i used the same cgm the same continuous glucose monitor that i'd used to discover this to then change my dietary decisions and so i started off just by Paring down the portion sizes, experimenting with different foods, and then biasing my whole nutritional strategy towards foods that helped me maintain blood sugar control. And the reason for that is that, uh, you know, glucose introduces an, a hormone called hor uh, called insulin, and insulin is necessary to take glucose out of the blood and move it into the cells for energy or for storage as glycogen or as or finally for storage as fat. And insulin has to respond in proportion to glucose. So if glucose rises very quickly to a very high level, insulin has to do the same thing in order to corresponding, uh, correspondingly reduce those glucose levels back to the normal range. And oftentimes, if you have a big blood sugar elevation, your body will overcompensate to get that glucose out quickly and by releasing a ton of insulin. And what you'll see is uh, that big spike followed by a huge crash. And this is called reactive hypoglycemia. And what I was experiencing was these large multi-hour long blood sugar elevations that, that, that were then followed by reactive hypoglycemic crashes. And my mood and my hunger, my satiety would all follow suit. So I was having this hormonal cascade, this like, you know, this roller coaster effect throughout the day multiple times at every meal. And this was causing just a complete destruction of my ability to focus, my, my ability to just, um, you know, basically continue moving through whatever task I was working on without trying to dig up another meal. Um, it was very destructive to my, to my day to day. And, um, so using the CGM to, to then find those issues in my, in my nutrition, remove them or substitute them, uh, demonstrated for me that this technology 
had a huge potential value. And so basically over the course of about two weeks, I was able to go from that pre-diabetic zone right down to a low normal uh, just by removing specific factors from my meals. I then went even further and got down into the the lowest quartile of blood sugar risk by uh, continuing to tweak specific lifestyle choices like the timing of my workouts and the quality of my sleep. And so just going through this process myself, hands-on, it showed me that this is the future of closed-loop feedback for lifestyle. And um, it's, it's absolutely necessary that this get into the hands of more people because right now there's an accessibility issue because, uh, you know, it's only considered useful for someone with diabetes and there's an actionability issue. You know, I had to do hundreds of hours of research to understand what I was looking at and why I should change it. And with uh, some simple consumerization of the technology, we can make this the, you know, the whoop strap or the Apple watch of metabolism. Beautiful. I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. I mean, that continuous, you know, monitoring of, of glucose and then you know, down the road, maybe other hormones as well. Cortisol will be another great one for my audience. But, um, yeah, I mean, to be able to see that instant reaction to a lifestyle choice, what you've put in your mouth would be, uh, you know, very, very powerful data. Exactly. And, you know, cortisol is, is a really powerful molecule. It's the, you know, it's the stress hormone and it's not something that we want to completely eradicate. It serves a purpose. It's necessary for us to, to, to prime us for fight or flight scenarios. But in modern society, we kind of artificially increase cortisol at every turn and cortisol has a profound metabolic implication. So it interferes with the ability of insulin to do its work uh, and basically will cause an elevated blood sugar environment. And the reason it does that is it's trying to create enough energy to ensure that you can escape the, the fight essentially that you're facing or that, you know, your body evolutionarily assumes it's facing. Um, and so you'll, you'll see this or I, I see this on my blood sugar information when I go and do an intense CrossFit workout. So I will have a, a very large blood sugar response. It'll look like I just ate candy. Now, it's physiologically very different than eating candy because this is my body creating, uh, creating glucose from my stores of glycogen and from sources like protein and fat. It's not my body responding to uh, kind of a, a bucket of sugar being dumped right into the bloodstream like, it, like what happens when you have a, a sugary meal. Uh, however, that cortisol-related blood sugar response if, if it's repeated day after day in stressful meetings and in, uh, you know, sitting in traffic and letting our minds run wild and, uh, you know, maybe getting poor sleep such that we're always in an elevated mood or sorry, in an on alert, like sort of elevated scenario, uh, we're, we're kind of cheating our metabolism to constantly be in this, uh, you know, aroused scenario and constantly in elevated blood sugar, uh, sort of an elevated blood sugar situation, and that has hormonal implications that last for days. And so, um, you know, kind of seeing the effects of stress on my own metabolic control has caused me to start to really appreciate both sleep and mindfulness, you know, finding those times to realize like I'm hyped up right now and I need to take five minutes and just close my eyes and breathe it out and, and then see the consequences, like see my blood sugar actually come down into the normal range again. Uh, it, it's pretty profound and it really shows that these systems do not operate independently of each other. Like every day, whether we feel like we're stressed or, or whether we feel we deserve to feel stressed or not, it has long, long standing implications for, for our, our health going forward. 
Absolutely. Well, the, the mindfulness and the sleep I want to explore in a moment because I think that's very important. Um, for you personally and understanding that everyone is a little bit different, what were some of the nutritional and lifestyle choices that you changed that improved your overall biomarkers? Yeah, the, the biggest one for me was understanding that I'm extremely carbohydrate sensitive. So it's, uh, it's something that, you know, I traditionally was, was not eating a huge amount of, uh, you know, it's not like I was eating fast food or, or really bad ingredients. I was actually cooking most of my meals at the time and uh, biasing towards things like brown rice and sweet potatoes and, uh, you know, what I thought were, uh, if you look at the glycemic index, relatively low glycemic index items. Now, the problem is that I also had these concepts in my mind that, I needed to, after my workouts, I needed to replenish glycogen. You know, I need to carb up, so to speak. And you might hear these words a lot if you're hanging out in, in uh, CrossFit circles. But that was what, how I was living is that every day before I would go to the gym, I would make sure I carbed up. And then every night, you know, right after my workout or, or that evening, I would then, you know, replenish glycogen by making sure that I got in a few hundred grams of carbohydrates. And um, seeing the data, I then realized, like, that was doing me no favors. I was actually completely overclocking my system. I'm already carbohydrate sensitive. And by eating all of this carbohydrate directly, whether it's brown rice or sweet potatoes or what have you, I was spending hours in an elevated blood sugar zone in the you know pre-diabetic range. And then I would come crashing down and experience all of this variability all night long, which would cause terrible sleep and set me up for a stressful, uh, poor metabolic control day the, the following day. And the cycle would repeat. And so the biggest thing was by by basically removing the large portion sizes and readjusting my perception of what is actually necessary to get the job done in the gym. You know, seeing the data that I would actually, my body will produce the glucose I need to get through an intense workout without eating anything. I can actually go fasted for 16 hours and my blood sugar is rock solid at the gym. So I actually don't need this like really intense uh, carb replenishment approach to nutrition, I can instead uh, basically rely on my own body to do its thing. And so seeing that, you know, and basically uh, completely readjusting my approach to fueling for workouts and removing that, um, those, those large carby meals has been really the biggest change I've made. That kind of aligns with uh, Julian Pinot, who I've had on a few times now. He's a, a French uh, founder of StrongFit and just a, one of those mad scientists when it comes to movement and, and health. But one of the last conversations we had, he was talking about nutrition and the nervous system. And he was detailing how in, in this particular philosophy that he's working on at the moment, he was having his carbs. And again, we're not talking about processed carbs, but his, his carbohydrates earlier in the day. And in the evening, he would only have protein and or fats because that would downregulate the nervous system and therefore, you know, cause a, a better sleep. Were you seeing that kind of trend in your data too? Definitely. Yeah, I, I, so I, I will find that my sleep will be affected no matter what if I eat within, uh, say, two to three hours of going to sleep. So I'll try to cut off. Um, and I think that has to do with just the body having to digest and so having to allocate energy resources to digesting. And that prevents it from dropping into the, you know, kind of the, the low energy environment of sleep. And uh, also the exothermic, like the heat production process or byproducts of digestion also prevent you from uh, letting your body temperature drop, which is necessary for sleep. So for those two reasons, I try to cut off uh, eating by like 7, 7.30 if possible. But then also for sure, I have a very strong correlation between blood sugar variation 
and uh, sleep quality and, and even heart rate. So if I eat a very carbohydrate filled meal uh, for dinner, uh, rather than like that higher protein and, you know, moderate fat, fibrous, you know, lots of vegetables type of meal, I, I will have uh, all night long, I'll have these fluctuations in heart rate pattern and blood sugar and my sleep scores, you know, if I, I do use several sleep tracking devices will always reflect that negatively. So uh, I, I personally bias towards a, a high protein, like I said, moderate fat, low carbohydrate way of eating. And in general, this allows me to maintain really strong consistency across the board. I have, I, I don't have superhuman energy levels. You know, I'm not trying to advertise that I'm like, you know, lifting cars all day, but I do have consistency. So I don't have those super highs and I don't have those lows. And the, the kind of like hanger and irritation is just completely gone. I, I have, uh, you know, better control over my mood and better control over my, my day-to-day quality of life than I, I really can remember. And so, uh, I, I think that that has to do with the the stability and the fact that the hormonal systems were res- that are responding to the choices I'm making are having to do so in much sort of lower and and more smooth uh, manners, if that makes sense. So like the hormones respond to each other in proportion. And so when you have like very large spikes happening, other hormones have to spike. And uh, that has longstanding consequences. And so if things are are low and controlled, the hormones can can respond accordingly. Now, turning kind of the, from the other lens, when you had a bad night, whether it was a short night, kind of focusing on the sleep deprivation element, what did you notice of the impact of a bad night's sleep on the following morning's glucose? Yeah, so this has been pretty well studied. And um, short nights of sleep can actually cause what's called acute insulin resistance. So insulin resistance is essentially, uh, it's the same state that we see in uh, issues like type 2 diabetes, uh, PCOS, which is the leading cause of infertility in the United States, heart disease. Um, Lots of issues are related to the body, the cells in the body ceasing to respond to insulin and ceasing to use it efficiently. And so uh, research has been done that shows that after just, uh, just basically four hours of sleep versus eight hours of sleep, a person will need 40% more insulin to clear the same amount of glucose from their blood. And that's a single night. And so I personally see this exact effect playing out in real time, where if I take a red eye, for example, and get just disastrous sleep all night long. My blood sugar will both be elevated throughout the day and also my responses to the same meals that I rely on day after day will be much worse. So they'll be, uh, you know, exaggerated blood sugar spikes thereafter. And it can take me sometimes like three days after one poor night of sleep to get back to my previous baseline. Um, There's also an effect called the dawn effect, which is, uh, it's thought to be a cortisol related increase uh, right around the time of waking up every single morning. So uh, basically your body's releasing some cortisol to prime your system to wake up and hit the day. Now, when things start to get dysfunctional, you start to see some insulin resistance, the dawn effect will become very exaggerated for people. So they'll have this literal blood sugar spike as though they just eaten something very sugary every single morning, uh, despite, you know, being fully fasted. And uh, especially after nights of really poor sleep, I see a, a really poor, uh, you know, glucose control, a really exaggerated dawn effect in the mornings. Now, with you being so research-based, have you explored uh, testosterone in sleep as well? I haven't uh, dug into that one. This is something that I, I'm really fascinated by and I'd love to learn more about, but unfortunately at this point, I don't have enough personal experience to talk much about it. Okay, beautiful. Yeah, because I know that's another, another you know, one of the master hormones, the sex hormones that uh, 
is is greatly depleted, which then you know has a, a domino effect on cortisol, on glucose, and all the other uh, hormones that we've been talking about today. Exactly. You know, it's really interesting to think about the body, the way it really operates. And we have these concepts like calories in, calories out for, for energy expenditure and weight gain. Um, and, and in reality, that what that's considering is that we're like, you know, we're this perfect machine where the amount of fuel that goes in equals the amount of energy we get out. In reality, we're, we're kind of a wet chemistry set where hormones, like basically chemicals are being released in proportion to other chemicals and in proportion to chemicals that are being added to the body at any time. And it's a very... Uh, it's what we would call an analog, an analog system. It's, it is not a perfect science. It's not digital. Things are not accurate. And oftentimes we can bias these hormonal systems in one direction or another through the choices we make. So, uh, for example, like continuing to have elevated cortisol levels can cause the inhibition of insulin, which can cause insulin to try to, uh, contradict the high rising glucose levels by continually rising, despite the fact that the, the tissues can't respond to it in the, in the environment of cortisol. And so you have this like, like hyperinsulinemic, hypercortisolemic environment happening and weight gain sets in and irritability sets in and all of this stuff can kind of go haywire. And, and yet all we're doing is just sitting in traffic the same time every day, uh, drinking a sugary beverage, trying to calm our nerves and not realizing that, that this flywheel is in effect. And, uh, so that, like that very messy chemical based, uh, concept of, of human metabolism is the right one. And it, it's a little bit frustrating to think about, but then at the same time with better information, it's actually something that we can, we can really personalize and, and take that data and use it just to make choices that help us ba- find balance. Yeah, well, especially the the you know the shift worker, the police officer, the firefighter, the medic, the dispatcher, you know, all the people that are in our professions. I don't think they understand how much shift work affects those balances. So yes, you know, there is there is an obesity epidemic in a lot of these professions, and of course, there's an ownership element to that. But people have to understand that in many of these environments, they're set up for failure. So knowledge is power. Once they understand what's going on in their own body, why they're craving coffee and donuts, and it's, you know, not a snide comment, there's actually science behind that, then they can start kind of identifying choices that maybe will reverse some of the damage that they're doing. Yeah, you know, I couldn't agree more. I I think it's uh, understanding the context for our lifestyles and the decisions we're making is so powerful, like to be able to see the feedback. Uh, rather than it being advice or something from the internet or something that worked for somebody else, um, having a closed feedback loop, which is what I get with with my continuous glucose monitor, that tells me how a specific choice I'm making is affecting me in real time. And it's not just something superficial like heart rate. It's it's going much deeper. It's a molecule in my body that every tissue in my body needs to survive. And being able to keep tabs on that in real time and see the response, like have my body speak back to me, is is really a powerful experience and it's something that especially for people who are living these elevated sort of stressful lives and especially with shift work and second shifts and late night shifts like that that are disrupting our circadian rhythms i mean it's all the more necessary and powerful for those individuals to be able to understand the context of their lifestyles absolutely well just one more kind of like uh tangent before we start heading towards people learning about levels itself um one i think very misunderstood word is carbs so you have obviously a candy cane, you know, and then you have 
um, steel curves. Steel curves. I've got that right. Um, so you know, a very, very unprocessed, um, hard to digest, slow to digest um, carbohydrates. So, did you do any observations on, for example, pasta versus you know a much more complex carbohydrate? Absolutely, and uh, you're you're totally right. You know, carbohydrates are. It's a very, very broad statement. However, uh, essentially, what it describes is a food that is made up of uh, you know, basically strings of sugars that are connected together. And those, those sugars in the more complex carbohydrates are, are, they're bound more tightly and they, uh, at the end of the day, they do break down into sugar in the bloodstream, but there are also, uh, basically, uh, straight monosaccharides. They're just like your, your standard table sugar that is, it's glucose. So it breaks down right into the bloodstream almost instantaneously. And the, the power of this technology is that it can show you those details directly, and um, there's some some fascinating research out of uh, out of places like the Weizmann Institute in, in Israel, which uh, have very recently, using continuous glucose monitoring, allowed us to see explicitly both the differences between those complex carbohydrates that have uh, you know basically a slower breakdown time and the the simple sugars, and not just that, but then show the individuality that comes into play. Um, and so the, the big trial from the Weizmann Institute showed that two people can eat the exact same two foods. In this case, it was a banana and a cookie made with wheat flour, and they can have equal and opposite blood sugar responses. And so uh, what this shows is that although it does matter, you know, you, we, the complex carbohydrate concept uh, really does matter. It is so individual that it's it's important that each person understand whether they are more sensitive to a specific variety. For, for this example, it was like fruit sugars versus grain sugars in order to know how much it matters. So um, basically this, this personalization element uh, I've seen in my own data and we've seen in the data set significantly, uh, which shows like people can, uh, you know, they can eat that oatmeal and one person can have a pre-diabetic blood sugar response to it and someone else can have essentially no elevation. And, uh, you know, that's where all the power lies is, is going beyond just like status, status quo uh, like nutritional science and then seeing specifically how you respond beautiful well um speaking of levels then so you know you have this continuous uh blood glucose monitoring so tell me about developing the software around that so people are able to actually track their own you know their own peaks and valleys as it were yeah so the you know what we did is we came to the the realization that um you know Continuous glucose monitors, which have been developed for the management of diabetes, they're they're amazing hardware, um, and they've come a very long way in uh, both convenience factor and uh, things like life life uh, basically the battery life uh, or enzyme life of the sensor itself, and then also the cost. And so the the hardware is is really in a good place. The thing is that the accessibility and the actionability of the data need to be improved upon. And so what, you know, it takes a heart rate monitor and, or an optical heart rate monitor and turns it into a whoop band, for example, is the, the way the data is presented and the user experience. And so we've been focused at, at levels entirely on the data science and the, the u- user experience. So turning uh, a simple sort of medical device into uh, something that provides a very elegant and intuitive experience to show you how choices you're making across diet, exercise, sleep, and stress are affecting you. And so this means logging your lifestyle choices and receiving scores that are contingent on the blood sugar response to those choices and seeing those and then being able to adjust 
try different things and make comparisons. And so a classic example would be, uh, you know, eating a personal pizza and sitting on the couch and then eating a personal pizza and taking a walk, uh, you know, a, a 25, 30 minute walk around the block and being using the, the tools that Levels provides, you can see specifically how a very simple, uh, you know, light walk around the block can completely change your body's metabolic response to the same meal. And that can then show, it's basically a receipt for that little optimization you're making. It shows you that it's not meaningless to, to get up and do light exercise. It's not meaningless. It, it really makes a profound difference. And in fact, if you can do this every day uh, and, and also make some tweaks to the, to the meal content, you can improve and get that positive compounding uh, you know, interest on those choices for years and years. And so those are the small tweaks that we highlight through the level software to show people where the area of areas of opportunity lie. Beautiful. Yeah. And I think that's what I've seen with, um, even with the, uh, Fitbit. So I, my last apartment, you know, I watched the, and then kudos to them. The, the HR department gave some kind of wellness initiatives and they had a free, very basic version of the Fitbit. And if people, you know, moved X amount of steps and they got Amazon, you know, vouchers and all this kind of stuff. And it worked. Like I'm not a big wearable person myself. Generally, I don't even wear, you know, my wedding ring most of the time. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but you know, it was, it was so great to see that people just got those small victories. And, you know, my wife wears hers, you know, um, all the time and gets her steps. And so I think that feedback is very, very important, especially if you're not, you know, intrinsically motivated. And again, that's not a, um, meant to be standing on ivory tower looking down, but you know, some people just have that motivation and some people need that feedback. They need that, mm-hmm. um, that verification that what they're doing is actually working. So I think this is a great tool for people to, like you said, to, to, to play, you know, the scientists on their own body and really, really understand the, the effects on their own physiology of their choices. That's right. Yeah. It's a, you know, the concept is closing the loop between actions we take and the reactions our bodies experience. So these things are happening. You know, it's not, we are not creating new data. Your blood sugar is responding and your hormones are responding to the choices you're making. And uh, all we're doing is allowing you to surface those and see them and take them into account when you're making your next decision. And so we can answer the question for the first time of, when you sit down for lunch, you know, what should I eat and why? And uh, previously it's like, well, something that tastes good or something that I read on the internet is good for muscle growth or something that worked for a friend for their diet program. No, now we can show you these are the foods that you are sensitive to. These are the foods that can wreak havoc on your metabolic control. Uh, And these are the foods that work super well for you. And you can build a, a truly personalized nutrition catalog and and then go beyond nutrition to even further maximize those decisions. And, and that's the timing of exercise and understanding the value of simple movement and understanding the value of deep sleep uh, and, and enough sleep. And, um, you know, I think that all of this comes together into a tool that I personally have never benefited from something more than this simple data stream and specifically the, the way that the interpretation happens. So showing it in the context of the decision, not looking at it, you know, the next day or a week later, it's looking at it in the moment when, when the change is happening. And that's how it reinforces for me the habit change and the accountability. Yeah. And the people listening again, you know, the audience, they are uh, very highly stressed, underslept, um, you know, group of men and women. So I think from that level, seeing the impact of shift work and understanding sleep hygiene as best you can in your, in your station. And then especially when you get home, this is another great tool for that too. 
hundred percent. And, you know, it's not all negative reinforcement. You know, a lot of, a lot of the time we hear concerns that, you know, it's like at the end of the day, I just want to relax and I just want to eat something that tastes good. And I, I don't really want to have to stress out about another thing. And, uh, actually we've seen quite the opposite. We've seen a lot of food freedom where people realize like, not only does this not tell me I have to eliminate all foods. And for me, I'll give a personal example. Um, ice cream for me is a really nicely controlled blood sugar response. So I, I can kind of indulge in ice cream and because it has kind of equal proportions of fat, protein, and, and uh, carbohydrates, uh, my glucose is very stable thereafter. And so that compared to something like a bread or a muffin, which will cause a huge blood sugar elevation and a lot of instability and a lot of hunger and irritability, I, I'll bias towards that ice cream, which I absolutely love anyway, and feel very confident that what I'm doing is is a, it's an optimized indulgence. And, and so there's a ton of examples of this where people are realizing simple tweaks, things that they love actually a bit more than a choice they were making. Um, can, can really work quite well for them. And it is possible to, to really enjoy your lifestyle and do it in a way that works really well for your personal uh, physiology. Beautiful. Well, obviously, people listening that are you know in great shape and want to optimize even more, this is a great tool. But there are going to be a lot of people listening as well that aren't that you know, maybe are pre-diabetic, maybe are already on you know some sort of diabetes meds. What have you seen as far as this is a tool to not only con- you know understand your own glucose levels, but maybe even get to the point where you are reversing diabetes now? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm super optimistic that that's the direction we'll be able to head in today. You know, the, the tool is, is just that it's a tool, it's for information, it's for wellness purposes. But, you know, the effects of glucose elevations and insulin elevations and ultimately insulin resistance, it's absolutely an epidemic in our society. You know, we have 88% of American adults are metabolically unhealthy today and 90 million Americans are pre-diabetic and 90% of them don't know it. And this is data from the CDC. And this is because we don't have a feedback loop. We're, we're flying blind in every sense. And, and today we have such an abundance of foods available at all times of night and day. And, um, that is allowing us to indulge in ways that we otherwise couldn't historically. And so it, it's important for us to have a dashboard, to have an understanding of when we're going off the rails and be able to correct course. And I'm optimistic that people are really changing their behaviors quite quickly and building a, a better lifestyle for themselves within only a few weeks. And although we don't have longitudinal data yet to show efficacy on, uh, you know, for example, avoiding type 2 diabetes, uh, we, we can say that the mechanisms at, at stake here, the glucose insulin uh, feedback loop and the insulin uh, or the hormonal theory of, of weight gain, you know, these things are, are very well established in research. And if we can demonstrate, you know, the connection between control of our glucose levels uh, through uh, the behavior change software like levels and long-term benefits for for risk of of disease you know i think we're going to be able to really make a difference for metabolic outcomes around the world and that is my personal hope and vision and the company's uh, entire mission right now is is to ultimately make a, a meaningful impact on metabolic outcomes around the world Beautiful. Well, yeah, well, especially that population. If they got to test their blood sugar anyway, why not use it for something positive rather than just to see if you've taken enough medication? Exactly. Yeah, it's um, you know, I'm very optimistic that across the entire metabolic health spectrum, we can improve the lifestyle component here. You know, the uh, many chronic illnesses like type two diabetes and heart disease are uh, you know, stated by the CDC to be avoidable. They're related to chronic lifestyle choices, and if we can make better decisions on the fly, um, we can. I think we can really reduce the burden of disease on our medical system, and also just improve the quality of life for everyone. You know, the human flourishing element, and it's hard to 
it's hard to predict all of the downstream benefits of that. You know, you can imagine in a society where one third of us are not uh, dealing with a diabetes illness um, or, you know, 88% of us are metabolically healthy rather than unhealthy. What would that do in terms of downstream effects for society? You know, the the kind of the opportunities are limitless, I think, and um, the quality of life certainly would be much higher for, for everyone. Absolutely. Well, especially right now, you know, what we've been through the last seven months, this has been one of my... Uh, frustrations is we had a captive audience, you know, to really discuss prevention, you know, holistic uh, healing, health, nutrition, farming, and we haven't. And diabetes has been, you know, underlined as one of the risk factors for, uh, you know, a, a deadly immune response to COVID. So I think Absolutely. that, you know, we need to have these discussions. So I think this is brilliant. Um, all right. So people listening, where can they find levels? So check us out at levelshealth.com. Uh, you can find the blog right there and definitely recommend diving in there. It goes much deeper on the metabolic health science and showing how, uh, you know, metabolism is connected to, to everything that we, that we deal with in our modern day. You know, uh, basically underlying physical health and mental health is metabolic health. Our brains and our bodies need energy to, to survive and metabolism is how we get it. So the blog is a great resource there. And then follow us at, at Levels on Twitter and Instagram. We post a lot of testimonials from people using it and then just a lot of tips and tricks. And then, uh, you know, I'm at josh.f.clementi on Instagram. I love to connect with people and share uh, more of what I'm learning and, uh, and also just hear feedback from people who are interested. Beautiful. And I want to say thanks to Miguel for connecting us as well. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you, Miguel. Shout out uh, Miguel and Ben Strahan who connected uh, me to Miguel. Beautiful. All right. Well, then transitioning to some closing questions. The first one I'd love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend that can be related to what we've discussed today or something completely different? Well, um, related to metabolism, I would definitely recommend Why We Get Sick by Benjamin Bickman. It just came out and it gives uh, an unbelievably compelling story for how insulin resistance has crept into our lives and how it's affecting us so negatively. And so I highly recommend that one. Um, I think a book that I'm, I'm reading right now that I really love is No Rules Rules by uh, uh, Reed Hastings. It's about the Netflix story and uh, just describing the culture they have there. And uh, so I, I really like that one. It kind of describes a, a world in which people are given accountability and candor is used throughout an organization to just uh, ensure efficiency and ensure that people have individual responsibility. Very similar. It reminds me a lot of uh, the SpaceX days and, and just the way that I feel organizations can, can optimi optimize their efficiency. Beautiful. I just watched the Netflix documentary with um, David Attenborough. Life on this planet, life on our... Oh, God, I've forgotten the name of it now. Anyway, it's incredible, but uh, they got behind that. But it, it's his testimony, basically, of, of a man who was on the front line of, you know, the wilderness of all these different jungles and, you know, beautiful areas of the planet where he studied nature. And here he is now as a 93-year-old man saying, I have seen these changes. I've watched deforestation. I've watched, you know, the, the ice caps melting. So, you know, here's these things that we can do to change it. So, again, reverse engineering where we've screwed up and then trying to use technology in a, in a, 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 positive productive way rather than a destructive way yeah absolutely i mean that's there's so much opportunity if we can apply resources in the right directions uh, you know i i feel firmly that we can not just s slow things down but turn them around and have an, a new era of of really beneficial technolo technological innovation that is beneficial not just for us and you know financial terms but also for the planet and and other planets Absolutely. It's called A Life on Our Planet. So I just looked it up, make sure I got Absolutely. it right. <laughs> okay. The, Thank you. So, so speaking of movies then, so the next question, is there a movie and or documentary that you love? 
I love the documentary Icarus. Um, that if you haven't watched it, it's about the uh, Russian doping scandal, and uh, actually it goes a little bit earlier than that into just an individual's attempts to see what doping can do for his own performance, and I, I think it's phenomenal. Um, a movie I would recommend. So my favorite movie, hands down, is Interstellar. Uh, it's a Christopher Nolan film about um, you know it's about a bunch of things, but space and time, and um, I love it. I can't can't recommend that one enough. Brilliant. I know of it. I've never seen it, so I'm going to, have to put that on my list. Um, okay, the next question. Is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? I would highly recommend Dom Diagostino. And uh, as, a, as a personal friend of mine, I, I think he can do more than, than many people to uh, just really help explain the benefits of um, alternative approaches to diet and nutrition and fasting and exercise. And I, I think he's a, an example himself and he knows more than, more than many. So I would highly recommend it. Brilliant. Yeah. He's been on my list for a long time. So I, uh, I need to act on that. So thank you. Um, all right. The last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you again, just to underline that, what do you do to decompress? My favorite decompression is exercise. Uh, I, I don't always love it, but it is the most effective means of, uh, bringing me into a centered space and just focusing on the task at hand. And that helps to declutter my, my mental space. And, um, I always feel my best when I've strung together, uh, some, some non-negotiable days of, of consistent exercise. Um, beyond that, you know, I really love spending time with friends and family. I just think it's, uh, it's kind of lost in our modern society, just how much it matters to spend time with the ones we love. And, the, it has a, a really strong benefit, I think, cognitively to, to just have a, you know, sort of our principles in front of us and, uh, things we care about and the people we care about around us. So, um, yeah, those are the two, the two big ones for me. Beautiful. All right. And then just to underline, so levelshealth.com is the best place to find out about levels. That's right. And uh, you can jump on our wait list there. We are still in an invitation only uh, phase right now uh, in development, but we're moving quickly and expanding access uh, every day. So please reach out, join the wait list, and, uh, and we'll get this thing out to the broader population as quick as we can. Beautiful. And mine's sitting here. Like I said, I'm about to do it. I just had such a hectic few weeks. I knew it wasn't going to give good data. So <laughs> I'm waiting for <laughs> November. I think it's going to be nice and smooth again. Everything will be done. Well, Josh, I just want totally to say, understand. yeah, thank you. So, so thank you so much for taking the time to come on. It's been a great conversation. Thank you for being patient with my, uh, very basal questions on, on space travel, but, uh, the, the parallels between some of the, the work that you've done before and, and the profession that I've worked in are, are very, very interesting. So I appreciate you being so generous with your time today. Absolutely, James. I appreciate you coming on and I, I love talking about those topics probably more than anything. So uh, talking about space and metabolism, I, I can't beat that. And uh, I'm excited to see what you, you find out with levels and um, yeah, hopefully we can do it again sometime soon. 